0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist radio show.
1: Welcome to the Jeff Nyquist program. I'm Jeff Nyquist, your host, and uh, tonight we're going to talk about the problem with Iran, but we're going to put it in context, in strategic context. Let's suppose that somebody in your neighborhood says they're going to kill you. They're absolutely they're going to rub you out, they're going to kill you. Well, You know, it's against the law for you to go and kill them first, but they say they're going to kill you. They're going to lie and wait for you sometime when you're coming home from work. They're going to break into your house in the middle of the night, maybe get you. You don't know how, but they've said they're going to murder you. What do you do? What do you do about that kind of threat? Or do you just blow it off and say, it's not real. He doesn't really mean it. He's just, you know, whatever. He's crazy. This is the kind of problem that the world has had with certain revolutionary politicians, like Adolf Hitler, like the communist politicians in the Soviet Union and Red China, uh, like Fidel Castro or uh, Hugo Chavez in Venezuela, who in their personal conversations, if we take intelligence from people in there, say that they do talk about the ultimate day when the United States is destroyed. In this case, with Iran, the conversation of the Iranian leaders... The internal conversation, the conversation they have with each other and what they say to their people is that they want to wipe out Israel. Israel is who they want to kill. Now, do we take them seriously? Do we take them at their word? Do we go after them? Or do we just leave it to Israel? Uh, what would that do to the Middle East? Let's hear what a Benjamin Netanyahu has to say. former Israeli prime minister interviewed recently on the Glenn Beck Show, and here's what he said to Glenn Beck.
2: I read an interview with a Holocaust survivor about a year ago uh, in one of the European papers, and the interviewer asked the Holocaust survivor, what is your main lesson from the Holocaust? And the Holocaust survivor said, my main lesson is that if somebody tells you he's going to exterminate you, believe him.
1: What's interesting is that if if you look at the history of, of Hitler, for example, that's what he did. Hitler said in advance that he had this plan, Mein Kampf, it was written out. He said many hateful things about the Jews. Then before World War II broke out, Hitler gave a speech. And in this speech, Hitler said that if war ever broke out in Europe again, he would eradicate the Jews from Europe. He would eliminate them. This was Hitler's threat. Once World War II got going, once Hitler was forced to invade Russia... By the logic of his position, he started to not just round up Jews and put them in camps, but he started a process of extermination camps where factories of death were created to eliminate Jews, to just murder men, women, children in gas chambers, and then then burn up their bodies to eliminate all the evidence. And this was very carefully engineered mass murder, very carefully engineered. Now, in the case of the Israelis. This is bitter experience within living memory. Bitter experience. It really happened. This isn't something that was made up, it happened. And when you have the Iranians, Ahmadinejad, saying that he is gonna wipe Israel out, what do you do? Do you take that seriously? And then when you see Iran reaching for nuclear capability, here's what Benjamin Netanyahu believes about where this is headed
2: i believe that the president of iran intends to exterminate israel i believe he intends to kill a lot of westerners and subjugate others and by the way also muslims that Mm -hmm. don't conform with his extremist views and i think he's a danger to the world because i believe his intentions i think he has to be stopped and stopped in time the most important thing is to make sure that iran does not acquire nuclear weapons this is what president bush has pledged to do And I think uh, we should support him and see that this pledge is seen through, not merely for the sake of my country, Israel, but for the sake of mankind. This is a great danger to the peace of the world.
1: It's very sobering. Of course, as Americans, we're on the other side of the planet. We can say this is Israel's problem. Israel has a nuclear deterrent. Israel can fire its nukes back at Iran. So it doesn't seem to be something that Americans necessarily need to be involved with. Except that once Iran fires those missiles at Israel, if deterrence fail, then everybody's going to say, why didn't the United States do anything? And I think this is where President Bush is coming from when President Bush says it is not acceptable for Iran to have nuclear weapons.
0: Permitting the world's leading sponsor of terror to possess the world's deadliest weapons would be an unforgivable betrayal for future generations for the sake of peace. The world must not allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon.
1: The Iranians are religious fanatics. Iranian leaders are religious fanatics, like President Ahmadinejad. And if they possess nuclear weapons, they may not be deterred by mutual assured destruction. They may see it as a glorious martyrdom. We don't know. And we also don't know how many nuclear weapons they will have once they get the manufacturing capability, before they will strike. It could be 10 years from now when they have hundreds of nuclear weapons. Or it may be as soon as they have a couple dozen nuclear weapons. Now, here's what American presidential candidates recently have said about this situation. Uh, on Good Morning America, uh, presidential candidate Hillary Clinton said the following about if Iran uses nuclear weapons against Israel.
3: Well, the question was, if Iran were to launch a nuclear attack on Israel, what would our response be? And I want the Iranians to know that if I'm the president, we will attack Iran. And I want them to understand that because it does mean that they have to look very carefully uh, at uh, their society because whatever stage of development they might be in their nuclear weapons program in the next 10 years, during which they might foolishly consider launching an attack on Israel, we would be able to totally obliterate them. That's a terrible thing to say, but those people who run Iran need to understand that because that perhaps will deter them from doing something that would be reckless, foolish, and tragic. Now,
1: that's pretty straightforward, but it it is kind of odd because Israel has nukes. Israel is fully capable of responding, so I'm not sure why presidential candidate Hillary Clinton has made this kind of uh, protection for israel she's putting israel under america's nuclear umbrella barack obama the opponent and at this moment of this uh, broadcast the more likely a democratic nominee for the presidential race in november uh, had this to say uh, to tim russert on meet the press
4: well uh, let me not uh, speculate yet uh, i want to i want to take a uh, take a look at the kind of evidence that the administration is putting forward what these plans are exactly I've always said that uh, you know as commander-in-chief I don't take uh, military options off the table and I think it's appropriate for us to uh, plan for a whole host of contingencies
5: Hillary Clinton was
4: asked about if Iran launched a nuclear attack against Israel
3: I want the Iranians to know that if I'm the president we will attack Iran we would be able to totally Obliterate
4: them. Obliterate them. What do you think of that language? Well, it's not the language that uh, we need right now, uh, and I think it's language that's reflective of uh, George Bush. That uh, we have had a foreign policy of bluster and saber rattling and uh, tough talk, and in the meantime, we make a series of strategic decisions that actually strengthen Iran. Uh, well, but would, in you, terms would you, of, in you respond terms of the against Iran? Uh, it, Israel is a ally of ours. It is the most important ally we have in the region, and there's no doubt that we would act forcefully and appropriately on any attack against Iran nuclear or otherwise so but it is important that we use language that sends a signal to the world community that we 're shifting from the sort of cowboy diplomacy or lack of diplomacy that we 've seen out of george Bush
1: his position is is a little more. Uh, careful in the sense that he's not really committing himself to anything, but he does say something interesting. He says that he believes that we're Israel's ally and we're committed to defending Israel. And, uh, I should say that that's an interesting position because previous American presidents in the, in the past have not taken that exact position. They've seen Israel as a, uh, as a close friend of the United States, but I don't believe we have any kind of treaties with uh, Israel. Uh, is that right? Um, well, we do. We, we're in the, involved in the uh, peace accord with Egypt. Now, uh, here's the only quote I could find um, on uh, John McCain. In that old, uh, that old Beach Boys song, "Bomb Iran," you know, "Bomb, bomb, bomb." Anyway. Uh... Okay. All the humor aside, um, how soon will Iran become a nuclear power? How much are we under a time clock here as to when this is going to happen? And I, I would say that this. Uh, uh, is is pretty soon. It's not that far away. It's it's months or years, as many years as the fingers on one hand, is uh, a, a good guess. Yosef Bedansky, uh, who is a, a terrorism expert, uh, has claimed that Iran already has two working nuclear weapons, taken from the former Soviet Union nuclear stockpile in the 1990s. Now, President Bush made an interesting statement last March. He said that the Iranian government wants to have nuclear weapons to destroy people in the Middle East. He didn't name the Israelis, but that's what he meant. And he's he's using a logic very similar to Netanyahu, who's here. He said that this was unacceptable to the United States and to the world. Now, Iranian President Ahmadinejad has publicly stated, and this is a direct quote, Israel must be wiped off the map, unquote. So they're not making this up. Now, certain people have quibbled over the translation of, of what President Ahmadinejad has said. The New York Times and other Western media has translated uh, President Ahmadinejad's statement about Israel that Israel must be wiped off the map. That's what they quoted him as saying. That is a, an idiomatic English expression. Uh, it does not exist in the Farsi language that's spoken by the Iranian leaders. What Ahmadinejad actually said was that Israel must disappear from history. It really means the same thing. It's just said in a different way. This is the way they have of saying it. And if you look at many of the statements that not only Ahmadinejad, but other Iranian leaders have made, it's clear that they want Israel to be destroyed, to be wiped out. So I think, however people want to argue about the translation, the important thing is, it's the spirit of the thing. They do want Israel wiped out. And I think that uh, Netanyahu and President Bush are right on that. Now, we'll, uh, we'll discuss the further implications of this after these messages.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show with your host, Jeff Nyquist.
6: WIBG 1020, live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All
4: right, oh, one-side kick, they blooped it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out
7: like you are doing right now. And if all of us would listen to this station more, I'm just so teed up about it. We talked about it. By the album. We
6: are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere.
1: Uh, We're back with the Jeff Nyquist program. I'm Jeff Nyquist, talking about the problem with Iran, what to do. Iran is threatening Israel. Iran is developing nuclear weapons. The Israelis are afraid that they will be attacked with these nuclear weapons, that it will be devastating, another genocide, another holocaust. And on the American side, the President of the United States has committed to saying,
0: Permitting the world's leading sponsor of terror, To possess the world's deadliest weapons would be an unforgivable betrayal for future generations. For the sake of peace, the world must not allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon.
1: The Iranians will not back down. They're claiming they're developing nuclear energy for peaceful purposes. But anybody with some common sense or street sense is going to go, wait a minute, this country's floating on oil. They can't be developing it for simply peaceful purposes. We've gone through the arguments that intervention has to take place, and we've heard what American politicians have had to say about this. Now, there's an Iranian, former Iranian diplomat, Assad Homiun, was interviewed on this program a few months ago. He is a leader in organizing the democratic opposition to the clerical regime in Iran, and he is very much against a bombing attack on Iran. Why? He believes that that will force the Iranian people onto the side of the regime, that it will turn them against America, that it will cause all kinds of problems with the internal political situation in Iran that will not help the opposition to eventually rid the country of the fanatics. Here are Dr. Homiun's words.
8: United States is playing with three options. Negotiation, diplomatic negotiation, sanction, and war. Diplomatic negotiation, I don't think it's going to be useful. At the same time, the United States also is following sanction. Sanction is not going to be decisive unless it will become universal sanction. I believe sanction does not bring clergy to change their attitude, their foreign policy, and their activities to acquire nuclear weapons and also they have lots of money they earn 90 billion dollars every year from oil everybody needs oil and i don't think sanction will be very decisive yeah what about war war it is very easy to start very expensive to continue very difficult to end after war we don't know what will happen and also, it might contribute to disintegration of Iran.
1: And we've seen the disintegration in Iraq already from what has happened.
8: Yes, it will contribute to disintegration of Iran, will contribute to balkanization of the entire area, will have impact on security of Balochistan and Pakistan, security of Turkmenistan, security of uh, Azerbaijan, security of Turkey. And security of the Persian Gulf. It is very dangerous. I think it is not going to help the United States. Yeah. I have been always advocating that the United States should help Iranian people. Iranian people are the most important force in the Middle East. Friend of the United States. Enemy of a regime regime destroyed everything in Iran. Let me explain that what the regime did to Iranian people, why Iranian people are ready to topple the regime. Uh-huh. Mismanagement of economy. Inflation is 25%. Wow. Unemployment is close to 30%. Arrest and torture is continuing. Execution of people who are in favor of uh, human rights continue. And I don't think... People of Iran are ready to accept this regime. They are ready to rise and topple this regime. I believe that the people of Iran are the most important force in the Middle East. And they are ready to change, but the United States should help them. They need United States' help. Now I should
1: add here that merely because uh, it makes sense in the sense of preventing a madman from getting nuclear weapons, or a, a group of madmen from getting them, that it, that it is not necessarily good strategy for the United States to involve itself in this situation. There are madmen who have gotten nuclear weapons before the Iranian clerics got them, and those madmen happen to be intimately involved in the Iranian acquisition the dictator in north korea has nuclear weapons and they have as they have recently proved by having a nuclear test and it has been uh, claimed by the pentagon since uh, april of 2001 that north korea has at least two nuclear weapons now before that stalin after the united states had acquired nuclear weapons in 1945 stalin one of the great mass murderers of history got nuclear weapons, and the Soviet Union built an enormous arsenal of thousands of nuclear weapons, mounted them on missiles, long-range intercontinental ballistic missiles that could travel in a matter of 20, 25 minutes from one side of the planet to the other so that Russia could promise to destroy America by annihilating all of America's major cities and weapon systems in the blink of an eye. Now, the United States did not intervene in 1949 to prevent Russia from manufacturing nuclear weapons. There was a choice. President Truman had it. He could either go to war against Russia to prevent it from becoming a a nuclear power and from producing nuclear missiles like sausages, or he could have just left it, and he left it. And there were very good reasons for Truman to do that at the time. There were other considerations. For example... All the Russian armies in Europe would have advanced against the West, and there was no real guarantee that we could stop those armies. The United States was at that time fairly well disarmed and not able to confront Russia. In fact, the United States has developed into a kind of country that has a large navy, an effective air force, but a very small army. The United States Army is only 10 divisions plus the Marine Corps. A lot of countries in the world have bigger military establishments than that. Now, granted, the United States military is highly effective, advanced technology, advanced communications, but still, it's a small army. And as we've seen in Iraq, even defeating a small country, the United States army is unable to have a proper occupation and settlement of that country. For for bringing peace, it was a, it was quite a mess getting that country reorganized again, and we're still not out of the woods in Iraq. So the United States is in this peculiar position: it can't, without a very large army like it had in World War II, it can't necessarily go around intervening everywhere. We did that in Vietnam; the American people didn't like it. And I'll get around to that in, in a little bit, because that's part of the problem too, that America has become a consumer society. And that adds to this problem another dimension. As Dr. Homeyun pointed out, it's a political disaster for the United States to widen an already existing conflict in the Middle East beyond where it already is. Because, as he pointed out, you cannot tell where a conflict is going to end.
8: War, well, it is very easy to start very expensive to continue, very difficult to end.
1: There's a military problem, and there's an economic problem. Iran sits right along the Strait of Hormuz. That is where the largest oil artery carrying oil to Japan, the West, the United States, Western Europe, uh, lies. Iran has acquired several thousand ballistic missiles and many I don't think we know exactly how many, anti-ship missiles. Anti-ship missiles, they can fire hundreds of miles, and ballistic missiles, they can fire hundreds of miles. The Iranians could do enormous damage to the oil infrastructure of the Middle East, and the threat of these uh, anti-ship missiles could cause the tanker traffic to abandon the straits. That is, if the tankers are struck by these anti-ship missiles, they'll be blown up. And there will be no way to carry the oil through from the Persian Gulf to the rest of the world. With oil already over $120 a barrel, any disruption of oil traffic through those straits is going to send oil above $200 a barrel with catastrophic consequences for the American economy, for the economies of Europe, Japan, even China. These consequences would amount to the beginning of a of a kind of stalling of the world economy. And, of course, there will be political ramifications and possible military ramifications because when you stop the means of a country to live or to maintain its standard of living, you are challenging it in a way that causes that country to be angry, people to be angry. And once political passions are ignited, you cannot control where they're going to go. And war very often results big war, like a world war. Now, it's important to consider the large powers, to consider them with all their missiles and their armies and their fleets and their sophisticated weapons, especially Russia, because Russia stands to profit by all this mess in the Middle East, because Russia is a very large oil-producing and gas-producing country, and it is raking in at over $120 a barrel money like it's never raked in before, and Russia is plowing that money back into its military establishment, building up its power to challenge the United States in the future. If Iran had a nuclear weapon, it would be a dangerous threat to world peace. On October 17th of last year, President Bush warned that Iran would be risking World War III if Iran came to possess nuclear weapons. I've told people that if you're interested in avoiding World War III, it seems like you ought to be interested
0: in preventing them from having the knowledge necessary to make a nuclear weapon.
1: President Bush also reacted at the same time to a statement made by Russian President Vladimir Putin, now Russia's prime minister. Putin had warned the United States not to launch military strikes against Iran. Now, this is going to figure very big in this idea of widening the war. Why did President Bush say that you're risking World War III? What what is in this? President Bush himself very strangely imagines World War III could be limited, perhaps, just to some Middle East countries and the United States and its allies. This is not the case. President Putin's warning about the United States not attacking Iran was not taken seriously by Bush.
0: When I visited with him, he understands that it's in the world's interest to make sure that Iran does not have the capacity to make a nuclear weapon.
1: Bush, who believes that Putin is his friend, doesn't think his friend will turn on him. Well, he's seriously mistaken because for some reason the Iranians have been talking about activating or calling out a treaty that they signed with Lenin in Russia back in 1921, which would allow Russian troops to enter Iran. They've even cited the example of Stalin actually invading Iran in 1941 because there were German military advisors in the country. Now the Iranians want to use this treaty to bring Russian troops in. There is talk that the Russian-Iranian energy agreement that's forthcoming that the details of this agreement involve something about Russian troops being in Iran. Now we know Russia is providing Iran with anti-aircraft systems, submarines, missiles, and other equipment. The Chinese have been providing the Iranians with missiles and missile technology. The North Koreans have also been helping them. Isn't it interesting if we look at these countries that are helping Iran? They're the countries of what used to be called the communist bloc. Only now, this communist bloc forms a trans-Asian axis. And its traditional enemy, the United States, is still the traditional enemy. It's interesting, too, to note what the former head of Romanian intelligence, Ian Pesepa, has said in uh, published articles that he's written. This former intelligence chief, who worked very closely with Yasser Arafat, and basically explained that Yasser Arafat was a Soviet agent, a Russian agent, uh, and that uh, a KGB general in Moscow was the inventor of airline hijacking, noted a conversation he had with Yuri Andropov, former head of the KGB and former head of the Soviet Union back in the 1970s. When Andropov was head of the KGB, he told Pasepa that in the future, the plan was to get the Muslim world at war with America and to get them to damage each other. It's very interesting how things have worked out now, isn't it? And uh, as I've mentioned before in this program, there was the uh, Russian defector Alexander Litvinenko in London who made the statement that the number two man in Al-Qaeda was a long-time KGB agent. He said that Ayman al-Zawari was a KGB agent. And Litvinenko, as we all know, was poisoned by polonium-210 in London in uh, the fall of 2006. It's all very interesting how it interlinks, the big powers, the small powers. Russia's nuclear arsenal, by the way, is still in place. It's still aimed at the United States. Now try to think, why would Russia want Iran to become a nuclear power? I mean, Russia's ostensibly fighting Islamist terrorists in Chechnya, right? Why, are, why would they want to be arming Islamist crazies in Iran if they're fighting supposed Islamist crazies in the Caucasus Mountains? It's because Iran is the way for Russia to disrupt America and the West's economies and to cause America to be diverted in a strategic sense, to become fixated. Not on Russia, not on the threat from China, but on this small power, Iran.
0: we got a leader in Iran who has announced that he wants to destroy Israel.
1: Now in the next segment, I'm going to talk about Admiral Fallon, the former commander of Central Command who resigned in March.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist
6: Radio Show. At 10.20 a.m. or WIBG.com, we're the area's first choice for Christian news talk and a whole lot more. WIBG 1020, on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020, we're everywhere.
1: All right, we're back from the break, and I'm Jeff Nyquist. This is the Jeff Nyquist Program. We're discussing the problem of Iran, and in this segment, I'm going to talk about Admiral Fallon, the former commander of Central Command who resigned in March. And uh, I'd like you to listen to this Al Jazeera piece by Clayton Fisher, who's a broadcaster for Al Jazeera.
9: For some analysts, Fallon's resignation is a clear sign of how the Iran issue penetrates the U.S. administration.
1: Iran and the United States are now deep, deep inside each other's spheres of influence and there is no robust diplomacy taking place between the two.
9: In an exclusive interview with Al Jazeera last September, Fallon tried his best to lessen U.S.-Iranian tensions. He said it was his hope that there would be no war. Months later, after meeting with Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak in Cairo, Fallon said it was inaccurate to believe that a war with Iran was inevitable. That could not have gone down well with those in the Bush administration pursuing brinksmanship with Tehran.
4: The Iranian regime needs to know that if it stays on its present course, the international community is prepared to impose serious consequences. The United States joins other nations in sending a clear message. We will not allow Iran to have a nuclear weapon.
9: The U.S. is aggressively moving to contain Iran in the Central Command Area of Influence, which most recently includes Syria and Lebanon. With the departure of a man who had pushed peacemaking rather than warmongering, it may now be clearer where the current U.S.-Iran policy stands. Clayton Swisher, Al Jazeera.
1: And here's a quote from Admiral Fallon about the uh, saber-rattling going on between the United States and Iran. He says, quote, This constant drumbeat of conflict... Is not helpful and not useful. I expect that there will be no war, and that is what we ought to be working for. We ought to try to do our utmost to create different conditions. It's a very unusual statement from an admiral. Now, this admiral uh, Fallon is very famous when he was the commander in the Pacific of creating uh, a kind of a relationship with China between the Chinese a military command in his military command. He even dropped in on a a Chinese commander at one point with his wife. Fallon's wife was with him and toasted the Chinese commander's wife and uh, I guess made a hit of himself on that occasion. But Fallon's considered by Defense Secretary Gates to be our most brilliant strategist in uniform.
7: Admiral Fallon will be difficult to replace. He is enormously talented, and he does have a strategic vision that is uh, rare.
1: And Defense Secretary Gates, I know for a fact, is a guy that does not think that bombing Iran or attacking Iran is a practical strategy. But because George W. Bush is president... And because George W. Bush feels that Iran must not have nuclear weapons, and President Bush will not take the option of military force off the table, Defense Secretary Gates must bite his tongue, and so must Admiral Fallon. Fallon's idea is to develop relationships with the leaders, particularly the military, but also the political leaders in that region. He was starting to function almost like a diplomat. Esquire author Thomas uh, Barnett, who did the interview with uh, Fallon in this article, the Esquire article that was so sensational, predicted that if Fallon was forced to resign, quote, it may well mean that the president and vice president intend to take military action against Iran before the end of this year and don't want a commander standing in their way. Now, I, I should emphasize, it's not that Fallon as a military man would be against winning the war against terrorism or defeating Iran. I think that it's clear that Admiral Fallon thinks that attacking Iran is bad strategy. That's a different thing and that uh, trying to promote peace is a good idea. There is some problems with Fallon's ideas however if he really took the time to truly get to know the political mind of the Red Chinese leadership or the Iranian leadership, he would realize that they are implacable. The problem with implacable enemies is that negotiating with them always ends up to be in their advantage and not very much in your own advantage, and that a lot is given away in these negotiations. And unless we are prepared to say that in Munich in 1938, British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was right in trying to make peace with Hitler, unless we're willing to say that, which is overturning the judgment of recent history that he was wrong, uh, then we have to think twice about what Fallon is saying and attempting to do. I think the reason that Neville Chamberlain is becoming more uh, defensible in recent times is because we've become so comfortable and our way of life is comfortable. We want to preserve that way of life. We want to avoid war. Obviously, the whole... Uh, society, the, the wonderful way of life that we have in the United States and in most of the West cannot be preserved if there's a major war p- breaking out. It cannot be preserved if the Middle East spirals out of control and oil reaches $200 a barrel. We're gonna be living in a different country. And of course, the political mind says, wait a minute, that's not politically acceptable. That's not something that we in the West can endure. In fact, we may have political upheaval here in the West if that happens.
5: Iran, in particular, poses a grave challenge. It builds a nuclear program, supports terrorism, and threatens Israel with destruction. But we hear eerie echoes of the run-up to the war in Iraq in the way the president and the vice President talk about Iran. They issue veiled threats they suggest that the time for diplomacy and pressure is running out when we haven 't even tried direct diplomacy well. George Bush and Dick Cheney must hear, loud and clear, from the American people and the Congress. You do not have our support and you do not have our authorization to launch another war.
1: Now, this piece from Obama is particularly interesting because the spirit behind it really is, is the American feeling, and I think he's tapped into it. America has a comfortable way of life. What's at the bottom of our desire to avoid a war is because our life is so good, it's so comfortable. A war threatens that comfortable way of life.
0: Some seem to believe that we should negotiate with the terrorists and radicals as if some ingenious argument will persuade them they have been wrong all along. We've heard this foolish delusion before. As Nazi tanks crossed into Poland in 1939, an American senator declared, Lord, if I could only have talked to Hitler, all this might have been avoided. We have an obligation to call this what it is, the false comfort of appeasement, which has been repeatedly discredited by history.
1: This statement that Bush made before the Israeli parliament to Knesset is a very powerful statement. And it's very hard to argue with it. It has a sort of Churchillian wisdom in it. It's got majesty. It's got uh, common sense. Um, he's being pessimistic, but he's being realistic because the Iranians' leadership, they're murderers, they're killers, they're fanatics. And once they get nuclear bombs, you don't know what they're going to do. It's very likely they will use it eventually. And against Israel, maybe even against the United States. But at the same time, we have to remember that uh, there's things besides nuclear weapons that can be used to destroy Western civilization. This, by the way, incensed Obama. On a
5: day when
1: we were supposed to be celebrating the
5: anniversary of Israel's independence, he accused me and other Democrats of wanting to negotiate with terrorists and said we were appeasers, no different from people who appeased Adolf Hitler. That's what George Bush said in front of the Israeli parliament. Now, that's exactly the kind of appalling attack that's divided our country and that alienates us from the world. And that's why we need change in Washington. That's part of the reason why I'm running for president of the United States of America.
7: You know, it would be a wonderful thing if we lived in a world where we don't have enemies, but that's not the world we live in. And until Senator Obama understands that reality, the American people have every reason to doubt whether he has the strength, judgment, and determination to keep us safe.
5: If George Bush and John McCain want to have a debate about protecting the United States of America, that is a debate that I'm happy to have any time, any place, and that is a debate that I will win. Because George Bush and John McCain have a lot to answer for. Right now,
7: Iran provides some of the deadliest explosive devices used in Iraq to kill our soldiers. And their president, who has called Israel a stinking corpse, has repeatedly made clear his government's commitment to Israel's destruction. Senator Obama has declared and repeatedly reaffirmed his intention to meet the President of Iran without any preconditions, likening it to meetings between former American Presidents and the leaders of the Soviet Union. Such a statement betrays the depth of Senator Obama's inexperience and reckless judgment. The summit meeting with the President of the United States which is what Senator Obama proposes, is the most prestigious card we have to play in international diplomacy. It is not a card to be played lightly. Summit meetings must be much more than personal get-acquainted sessions. They must be designed to advance American interests. An unconditional summit meeting with the next American president would confer both international legitimacy on the Iranian president and could strengthen him domestically when he is very unpopular with the Iranian people. The next president ought to understand such
1: basic realities of international relations. The strict logic of those that want to bomb Iran says, wait a minute, if we don't get rid of this problem, it's going to grow and it's going to expand. My take on it is very different. I believe that Russia is behind some of these events. Russia has helped Iran to develop these weapons to this point. It's Russia that's warning the United States not to bomb Iran. And I think that bombing Iran would only be effective and blockading Iran would only be effective if Russia and China in the U.N. Security Council were willing to go with us. If they were willing to go with us, then I'd say, yes, bombing is a workable strategy. But since Russia and China are against it, it cannot be a workable strategy. Because without a kind of perceived unanimity that this is being done for the world, people will say America is being a bully. Why should America decide which countries get nuclear weapons? And therefore, America would take a tremendous political hit in the third world and especially in Muslim countries for doing this kind of an attack on Iran. It would be like going it alone because you need other big powers on your side to do this sort of thing. The world is divided between many powers and factions and strictly being stuck on Iran is wrong because our, our real serious threats to the United States come from Russia and China, countries that possess, in the case of Russia, thousands of nuclear weapons already and China having hundreds and North Korea already having such weapons and also having a government that's fairly, uh, well, we would call them differently rational. The way that the United States needs to, to look at the situation is to take the larger view that if we commit ourselves into a war with Iran or a prolonged conflict or a widened conflict in the Middle East, we may be falling into a trap, a provocation that's a classic out-of-terrorist uh, strategy. And I'm going to discuss that in the next segment. We'll be back with that after these messages.
0: You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show.
6: On air or online, we're Life Radio 1020 WIBG. Christian news talk with purpose and passion from early in the morning. Now in
7: life, you're allowed to support whoever you want. But in partisan politics, there are rules. To Grossman Afternoons. Someone suspects they an illegal immigrant. The cop is more afraid of arresting them At- than of letting
6: them go. Chuck Bettson Sports Saturdays. That's how you're battling it. I like that. Yeah, we're we're like that. We're not going to ignore it. And Dan Klein, South Jersey Insider. I
0: think that's more than reasonable? I certainly,
6: you know, we're talking about Twelve million dollars here i don't think any reasonable person would blame you one bit wibg 10 the area's first choice plugging you into life
1: i'm jeff nyquist and we're back talking about the iran crisis in the context of america's strategic position i want to go back to try to illustrate one of the reasons why bombing Iran may be a bad idea by going back to the Algerian crisis of the 1950s. And in that crisis, uh, Ben Bella, who was then about to negotiate for the Algerian uh, revolutionaries with the French government, was flying to Tunisia on a plane provided by the government of Morocco when the French military intercepted the aircraft and forced it to land in Algeria to take Ben Bella and a lot of the, the entourage around him prisoner. Now, this was a violation of international law for the French military to grab a leader of the Algerian revolt and force his plane down to take these people prisoner. And even though it was a great coup, and the morale of the French in Algeria was raised by capturing this important leader, the long-term consequences of this uh, illegal international action was that it brought countries of Tunisia and Morocco against France in support of the Algerian revolt. It brought international pressure to bear against France. It hurt France's war effort in the long run in very serious ways. It is very subtle. There are two kinds of warfare. One is all out, a war to the death, and the other form of warfare is low-intensity warfare, in which terrorism plays a role. And in the case of Iran, just as in the case of Algeria, it is not just simply the use of violence that settles things. Because the use of violence isn't the ultimate use of violence. We are not going out to exterminate the Iranians when we bomb Iran. Iran is still there, and there's all kinds of people who are in sympathy with Iran. It's the same thing. When Ben Bella was captured, it was a great victory for the French in their attempt to suppress the Algerian revolt, but it didn't end the war. And instead, by violating international law to uh, reach that result, they hurt their long-term strategic position. That's an important illustration. Now, How terrorism works and provocation works. It's an old concept going back to the old Russian secret police, provocation. It means you do something terrible that allows you then to react. Now, I'll I'll give an example. The Russian secret police would infiltrate some group, some revolutionary group. And their infiltrator will tell the revolutionary group, hey, let's assassinate a government official. And the Russian secret police might even allow them to actually conduct the assassination or almost conduct it. And then that gives them the reason to swoop in and arrest everybody involved in that revolutionary group. Everybody gets rounded up and arrested and now they've got something really good to show the Russian people. Look at these evil revolutionaries running around with guns threatening to kill this nice man. Okay, there's an example of provocation. A larger example of provocation. World War II. Hitler... Is uh, got the Luftwaffe, he's just defeated France, he's ready to take out the RAF, the Royal Air Force in Britain. What do the British do? They're afraid that if it's a regular straight-on fight between the air forces, the British will be attritioned away. They'll lose control of the waterways around Britain and Britain will be open to invasion. So what do the British High Command do? They decide to start bombing, firebombing German cities. Now why do they do this? They're killing women and children. Why are the British want to use their air force at this moment to kill German civilians. Because Hitler's going to be under pressure to respond in kind. So what does Hitler do? Hitler gets angry. The German people get angry because their cities are being bombed. So suddenly, the German air force, instead of being used to attack military targets in Britain, starts being used to attack civilian targets in Britain in retaliation. Hitler gets up, he makes the I'm coming speech, And the Battle of Britain begins and the Luftwaffe suffers a defeat because the Luftwaffe was suckered into attacking the wrong targets. That's an example of provocation. In Algeria, this was used in a very barbaric manner to achieve victory for the terrorists. They intentionally, at one point in the war, the revolutionaries in Algeria adopted the program of committing atrocities and getting civilians to commit atrocities against other civilians, to get Muslim civilians to kill European children even, and to horribly mutilate their corpses, do horrible things to people. What is the logic of this? This, I mean, how could you win? If you start to commit atrocities, everybody thinks you're a monster, right? And then you lose. No, not quite. The Algerian revolution was started by a handful of militants who had hardly any weapons. What they needed most of all was to recruit people to join their cause. By committing atrocities, the French officials and French soldiers would see the atrocities, be emotionally affected by the atrocity, and overreact by committing atrocities of their own against the Muslim population in Algeria. This, in turn, would drive Muslims, who were angered at the French atrocities, into joining the revolution. This would fuel the revolution. Let's go a step further. Nine Eleven, good example. Look at this. You have this horrible event. Mohammed Atta and his, his crew hijack these airliners, these four airliners. They dive them into the World Trade Center, into the Pentagon, and they kill thousands of people. The Pentagon is burning. The World Trade Center is flattened. Horrible, slitting the throats of innocent airline stewardesses, women and children on those planes, in those buildings, killed. It's something that America will never forget. But look at the result. The United States invaded Afghanistan, and you could say it's related, we invaded Iraq. The United States has a permanent military presence in the Middle East. The United States has had to use bombs and uh, troops to try to settle matters in in Iraq and in Afghanistan. And this has created friction. It is a a way of getting Muslims angry at the United States. Look, the U.S. is now invading Muslim countries. The U.S. is a threat. Osama bin Laden's right. We have to now join up the resistance. So it's a provocation that will supposedly, if it works, bring fruit to the terrorists. Now, the United States has reacted with such great force and so successfully in many ways that uh, by most reports, al-Qaeda is on the run. Al-Qaeda has been severely damaged and only exists in, in the tribal areas in Pakistan where it's rebuilding its strength and trying to come back into Afghanistan. But that aside, if we look at the provocation idea, it is a very intriguing strategy. Now let's go a step further. Russia... It's been in the newspapers. The Iranian nuclear scientists, many of them, were educated in Russia. A lot of the equipment that the Iranians are using to help produce their nuclear weapons comes from the former Soviet Union, from Russia. Why are the Russians doing this? It's a provocation. By creating a situation in Iran which provokes the United States and Israel, You've got these crazy Iranian leaders, they're saying Israel should be wiped off the face of the map, the Zionist entity should be destroyed, the Holocaust didn't happen, that sort of thing. We've got Benjamin Netanyahu saying,
2: I believe that the president of Iran intends to exterminate Israel. If somebody tells you he's going to exterminate you, believe him.
1: Right now, the United States is placed in a lose-lose position, because now we are being provoked into attacking Iran. And who is the provocateur? Who is the one provoking us? It's the Russians. Isn't that interesting? And if it's true, as uh, Alexander Levineko, the former KGB officer who defected to Great Britain, said that al-Qaeda leadership is full of KGB agents, that Ayman al-Zawari was a known KGB agent. If that's true, then even al-Qaeda may be a KGB provocation. And the United States, by becoming involved in the Middle East in this way, may be falling into a serious trap. And it may be that we're helpless. We had Andrei Alaryanov on this program a few weeks ago, Putin's former economics minister. And he said...
8: Without attack of U.S. on Iraq, I think that oil prices would be lower today. One of the very clear outcomes of this intervention in Iraq, not only um, deaths of thousands of American soldiers, not only death of tens of thousands of Iraqis who died during this conflict, but also much higher oil prices. And for that much higher oil prices, very many millions of people in many parts of the world, including here in the United States, are paying a very heavy price.
1: If we didn't have 9-11, there wouldn't have been an invasion of Iraq, and we wouldn't have oil prices where they are now. Now, it's very interesting. Russia is the main beneficiary of this. Russia has some of the largest oil and gas reserves in the world. Russia is making enormous amounts of money exporting oil, and this is what Russia is using to retool its military system. This is what Russia is using to position itself, again, to be a great power that will replace the United States. So we see these strategies of provocation, very sophisticated. They've been used for uh, decades, for hundreds of years even, by different powers. And the Russians, they're very sophisticated players at this provocation game. And I take you back to what the former head of the Romanian East Bloc Intelligence Service Former acting head uh, Ian Pisepe said in an article that he wrote, I believe it was on uh, National Review Online, he said that Andropov had told him that part of the Russian future strategy was to get America into a war with the Muslim world. That you have more than a billion Muslims suddenly angry at the United States. Now the economic effects. These high energy prices are damaging the U.S. economy. Already suffering from the housing bubble and what I believe is a bubble in the stock market. And the fact is, we have serious financial trouble. Just as we have this serious financial trouble, oil is going over $120 a barrel. The dollar is failing. And if you consider that the Russian grand strategy, part of it also is to cause political unrest in the United States and to discredit the American leadership and to make the United States seem to be the enemy of the third world. All these things dovetail right here in the strategy that's unfolding. And President Bush, even though it makes sense to go after Iraq, and Iraq is a serious threat, it would make more sense to say, all right, Russia, you have to stop Iran from developing the nuclear power. You have to vote with us in the UN. If we don't and Iran launches a nuclear strike on Israel, we're going to retaliate on Russia. We're going to treat an Iranian nuclear attack on somebody else as a Russian nuclear attack because you enabled this. You allowed this to happen. There has to be some responsibility for the great powers because it is the great nuclear powers that possess the keys of nuclear weaponry to begin with. Their direct fingerprints are on this particular transfer of nuclear power. And we can say the same thing about the Chinese transfer of nuclear power to Pakistan. I think... You have to realize that there are really larger blocks of countries against each other involved here, as in a world war, and that major power rivalry is behind many of these events and turns of events. Now, I'd like to close with an interesting piece of information. I recently read about a war game that the Pentagon played several years ago. It was a war game where the United States was going to launch a preemptive attack against a rogue dictatorship in the Middle East. In this attack, they had the red team, that is the rogue dictatorship, and the blue team, the good guys, the United States, squared off against each other. The United States had all the advantages. It had the naval power, it had the satellite power, it had greater intelligence in the real-time battlefield uh, information from satellites. In this war game, though, instead of the blue team winning, the red team, the rogue state, launched surface to surface missile attacks against the US fleet in in the Arabian Sea and devastated a carrier battle group including sinking an aircraft carrier, total of 16 American warships as I recall was sunk in this uh, war game. Very a staggering result. The United States is not an invincible country. We can make mistakes. Our military victories of the past have been great achievements, but we may not have that same luxury in the future. When a country like Iran has surface-to-surface anti-ship missiles from Russia, from China, some of them very advanced designs, there may be also technological surprise in that these missiles may reach further than we believe, and they may be modified in ways that we don't understand. So there is always danger that America could also be defeated, In an attempt to go after one of these countries. It is interesting in this particular war game that the generals in the Pentagon decided, no, we're going to start over. They refloated all the sunken ships and said that didn't really happen. And the victory of the red team was taken away and they replayed it so that the blue team could win and said, okay, we've declared victory. Now we've won. I think that this goes with the American attitude that we do think we're invincible. We underestimate the enemies that are against us, and we don't really look at the big picture. I am Jeff Nyquist. I hope you'll join me next week at the same time for another edition of The Jeff Nyquist Show.
0: You've been listening to The Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. .com Thank you for listening.